Hello everyone and welcome to episode 85 of the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This episode is an interview with Mary Ewald, who is currently starring as Prospero and also as Caliban in New City Theatre's production of The Tempest, which runs through April 30th. You're going to find tickets and all the information you need at newcitytheater.org. It's a conversation about magic and mercy, and it was an absolute delight to sit down with Mary in her kitchen and talk about the theater and Shakespeare. This episode is sponsored by Outcast Productions. If you're around Whidbey Island this weekend, April 15th through the 17th, Outcast has begun a theatrical flirtation with the Pocket Theater, based out of Greenwood, and... They are hosting a bunch of awesome performers, including 50% Less Bear, uh, Illuminati the Musical and Dead and Breakfast, Schlong Song, which is Woody Sticks of the Libertini's new stand-up storytelling solo performance show, Wisecrack, Day Job, and Bill Burnett. For more information, please visit outcastproductions.net. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. As always, please visit theatricalmustang.podbean.com. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, or if you'd like to become a sponsor, or if you would like more information. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy episode 85 with Mary Ewald. excited to welcome Mary Ewald to the podcast. Welcome! Thank you, Katie. We're going to talk all about New City Theater's production of The Tempest, which just opened. Congratulations. How did opening weekend go? It went great. It went great. We, uh, we postponed our original opening date because we felt like we needed additional week of rehearsal. So that's not an altogether unusual thing for New City to do. And uh, so we opened last week and just finished a uh, yeah very, very fun first week. So the roles of Prospero and Caliban are double cast, so you're portraying both roles. What's that been like for you in the rehearsal process? Well, it's been uh, very, very challenging. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there have been times when I've wanted to look at Peter Crook, who I'm sharing the roles with, and John Kazanjan, the director, and go, whose idea was this? And then I'm reminded that it was mine. (laughs) So... I can't be too upset with anyone. So it, it's going to be great fun in performance, but it has a certain impractical side when it gets to Absolutely. scheduling because you're not getting, you're getting kind of half as many rehearsals and run-throughs. So it's a challenge. And um, so it's taken Peter and me, I would say, longer than usual to kind of feel settled. But um, now we both know it's possible. And uh, and it really is great fun. The, the light and dark, you know, they're really like opposite sides of the coin Absolutely. of Prospero and Caliban. Um, so it is great fun to get to do the contrast. It's just a kick. <laughs> Why did you make that decision back, back before you were thinking about what it would actually be like on your feet? Yeah. You know, the reason we did it is, um, for, um, a sense of ensemble and that we're, um, we've enjoyed working with Peter Crook a lot over a lot of years and, um, and he you know, was interested in doing Prospero. John said to him years ago, well, what's the role you'd really like to do? And he didn't answer for many years. And then when we closed Hamlet, which we did in 2014, uh, closing night, I think uh, John said that Peter said, you know, you know the role I'd like to, I'd like to do Prospero. 
And John was drawn to The Tempest because he really likes magic. And he likes the fantastical and the mm-hmm. magical. And uh, so, but he said, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm only going to do it once. And, you know, John and I have done so much stuff together because I, I would want there to be a female Prospero as well. And then, and then I said, well, maybe we should share the role. But then, you know, not having anything to do on your off nights would be awful. So that's what kind of led to, well, maybe we should do, you know, flip two roles back and forth. So Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And now with uh, having played Hamlet as well, what, what do you love about playing traditionally male characters? Hmm. Um, well, I've done it a number of times. Even as a young actress, I've been lucky enough to get to play some great um, male roles. And uh, I guess I just love, you know, the chutzpah, the, the balls it takes to, you know, not be limited by what a lot of, especially classical literature kind of limits, you know, the roles of women sometimes, you know, and I went through a lot of years of playing the, the young ingenue. And so (laughs) it was a great thing as I started moving out of my ingenue years to get to take on meteor character roles and, uh, and not be limited by that. So I just like the, um, you know, just the wide openness of it, you know, I would agree. I've had the honor recently to play some, uh, male roles. And I think, when you've had that experience to contrast with the lack of power and then having so much power, it's just, it's delightful. I think personally. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the rest of your cast. Well, it's a big cast for a new city production. There are 14 (laughs) people in it. I had to sit here and write it all down to make sure I didn't forget about it. But, um, of course there's Peter Crook and then there's Brandon J. Simmons and Sean John Walsh and Kevin McEwen and Cynthia Whalen. Susan Corzat came with us and we worked with Susan, uh, in King Lear many years ago. She played Gloucester then, and now she's playing King Alonso. So we're uh, honored to have her with us. Um, Elena Kazanjan, Nancy Brazil, Piper Olson Carafa, Harry Jameson, and Julie Jameson. So we have actually two uh, parent child couplings because my daughter Elena is playing Ariel, and Harry and Julie are playing Stefano and Trinculo. And Skylar Tatro as Miranda and Maymay Garcia. What a cast. What a cast. They're all working so hard. <laughs> it's a great gang. So, producing The Tempest in 2016, a play that is has elements of magic in a really, let's be honest, a bit of a cynical world sometimes. Yeah. What have you found along the way, both for actors and audience, what do they take away from this story set, you know, produced in this time? Yeah. Um... Well, the magic is just kind of the icing on the cake, you know, of, of anything being possible, right? Um, so it's just kind of a vehicle, I think, to make to make a lot of fun things be able to happen and happen that quickly. The, the sense of time in The Tempest is really extraordinary, that it happens almost in real time, uh, in about three hours, which our production's only two hours and 15 minutes, but uh, they thought that Shakespeare's um, production's it was probably about three hours. The audience would come at two and then leave like right around dinner time because of the natural light and everything. So it's really written in real time, which is really interesting. And then it's pretty great play to be doing right now because it really boils down to being about mercy Mm. and forgiveness. And, um, well, those are obviously timeless themes. It was interesting that while we were in rehearsal, um, John Kazanjan found that the the Pope had recently written a book about mercy and found a lot of overlapping kind of themes and ideas 
that you know people can get i mean prospero has a very dark side and gets really wound up into this revenge and then he comes around to you know understanding that the rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance and and he comes around it's full circle and so and then it's also a very interesting structure that it's got these three parallel plot lines and they're right. all about revenge and power revenge and power you know from the um from the more mechanical characters you know of stefano trinculo all the way up to you know the pre-story of what happened with the, the you know prospero's brother usurping the dukedom and all that it's all about power and then for it to come around and be about mercy is pretty great <laughs> Absolutely. We need more mercy in this day and age, don't Absolutely. we? Absolutely. Absolutely. So. <laughs> so when folks get their tickets, the show runs through April 30th. They're going to want to visit newcitytheater.org, which will link to brown paper tickets. Yes. Yeah. Go get your tickets, folks. Yeah, I see the show. It's starting to sell out because we only have 49 seats. So it will Wow, it 49 will seats. Out. Yeah, it's the most intimate Shakespeare you'll probably find. <laughs> Except I if you're doing it. it in your living room. So, yeah, it, it will sell out. And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to extend. So, you know, those that get tickets soon will be the ones that see it. Hop <laughs> on it, folks. <laughs> so, New City Theater, founded in 1982. Mm-hmm. So, you have on-the-ground knowledge of over 30 years of Seattle's theater history. Why did you start the company? What was the impetus behind that? Well, um... John and I had been living in New York and uh, working there, and I got a job opportunity at The Empty Space, uh-huh. and that brought me to town. And then I auditioned for Margaret Booker, who founded The Intamon, and that led me to a, a season, uh, like a six-month contract of doing at least three plays, maybe four. And um, so we relocated here because I had that contract. And so John just started sniffing around as a director, you know, <laughs> what could he dig up? So he uh, quickly got work at the, the Empty Space and got an NEA directing fellowship and was their dramaturg for a while. And, um, and then this opening came up at this uh, kind of falling apart theater right here on Capitol Hill. And at the time it was called the Conservatory Theater Company. And they were looking for a new artistic director. And the place was not in good shape. It had a big deficit, and um, it was really struggling, and the building was in bad shape. But when John went in to interview, uh, he learned that they owned the facility. They owned that building right here on Capitol Hill. And so coming from New York, that was just like, Bobbing, what? You own the building? <laughs> so he was like, hey, uh, yeah, I'd be willing to take this on if you are with me as a board and everything that I will completely change the mission statement. I'll change the name and um, I'm interested in doing more contemporary and experimental work. And so um, so they went for it and uh, yeah, went from there. <laughs> what have been some of the highlights for you over the years? Are there What floats to the surface? What floats to the surface um, besides, you know, getting to really establish a a deep collaborative relationship with John Kazanjian and working as a as a couple um, on so many projects. The other um, period at New City that was so rich, and this was uh, probably mid '80s, and this was before the funding scene really, you know, dropped out, which started with Reagan. Um, and we were able to do uh, national collaborations with um, very well known senior experimental artists. So we 
uh, we uh, commissioned and premiered new work by Richard Foreman, by Maria Irene Fornes, and by Len Jenkin. And Susan Laurie Parks came out. We did the first West Coast premiere of one of her plays. Wow. And, uh, and so that was a rich period artistically, and for me as an actor, just whew, just huge to get to work with those folks as directors and working on new material. So, so that, was, um, that was pretty exciting. And then, oh, we also did a collaboration with Theater X from Milwaukee. They came out and we developed a new piece together, which then we uh, performed in, uh, in Scandinavia and in Germany and in Milwaukee. So that, that was another great project. Over the years, what, what stories do you find yourself most drawn to? What stories? What kinds of stories? What kinds of plays? Um, well, obviously, I like strong women or else something I can do that was written for a man. Um, I, well, I definitely, John and I are both uh, very much drawn to non-naturalistic work. We like work that requires um, the theater. So much naturalistic work feels often to us like that was a really good production, but you know, the movies do that kind of material better than the stage. Right. And so what is there that we can bring as theater artists um, that can only happen when it's live in front of people. And so that leap of the imagination of doing things that are, that are not either so uh, logical or linear or rational, that leap of the imagination that theater can do so well. And so that's partly why we like magic, you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah. So things that are unexpected and, uh, and that, and that, oh, and we also really like, um, we've really been drawn to dense language plays. Mm. We've done um, work of uh, Wallace Shawn a number of times. Yes. I ran a production of The Fever here in my living room for, oh, I don't know, maybe five months. And, um, and, and we've done poetry salons over the year. We did um, uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland down here in our basement. That was when we left the space. And um, so dense language work non-naturalistic work. Can you talk more about how, uh, producing the fever in your living room? Because I want to hear stories about that. <laughs> Wallace Shawn is such a unique playwright. The lang- It almost gives you a fever reading or listening to his language. That play certainly does, yeah. yeah. And I just did a reading at the UW of, um, of Aunt Dan and Lemon, yeah, and, which I guess he wrote right before the fever, and it was just amazing how much of the fever was in there. Um, that was, that was fun to hear again. Um, but yeah, um, you know, he wrote, when, when Sean wrote the fever, he was performing it in living rooms in New York city. So that was how he originally performed it. And to, you know, get people in that setting and in that comfortable sort of setting where, you know, here we are in this lovely home and we're all so fortunate. And, and then you lay this story on them about white privilege <laughs> and, right. and it kind of just slaps people in the face and, uh, you know, some people couldn't make eye contact with me, and, and so you learn to skim over them, and other mm. people were just really drawn in. Actually, a fellow from that was working at Microsoft at the time found the piece so moving that he, he sort of paid for us to extend it so that he could bring more of his colleagues in to see it and stuff. And it, and it, he, cause it was at a time of his life where he was really questioning the values of what he was doing and was trying to put more and more of his money into you know, getting medicine to Cuba and different things like that. And so it's a piece that really addresses things on such a deep level. <laughs> Absolutely. How many, how many, what was the maximum audience you had for that? 
I think probably about 20. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. And we also did um, Allen Ginsberg's Howl. Kristen Cosmos performed in mm. the dining room. And then I did The Wasteland in the Basement. <laughs> I love it. What is, I mean, how do you decide that, that marriage of performance of, of play to space and having this home that you can open up to people? What, where do those ideas come from? Like I, that, that almost that dictate, like I have to do this in this room of my house and invite others to see it. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think it, we were inspired by learning the fact that, that Sean had done it in living rooms in right. salon theater. Um, and, and there's a, you know, a long history of salons and Absolutely. soirees and everything. And it's like, how intimate can you get it? You know, especially in, you know, if it's something as, as dense as the wasteland or something, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get it to an audience of 50 or a hundred, sure. you know, you, you need them to be right there in the room with you. Um, I think so. So it's been fun over the years to just sort of play around with. How do those different spaces. audience sizes feed you as an actor? Like what is that experience of performing to a house of five as opposed to a huge house? Yeah, it's, um, it's challenging and, and it just requires you to get more and more subtle and more and more selective and, um, you know, you don't make the same size choices that you right. do if you're at the rep or something. Um, so, so I like the subtlety that it requires. Um, we did the home, homebody, Tony Kushner's homebody mm. up at the space, which, you know, we could have done it for a group of 49, but it's again, it's this tender, delicate, you know, sort of 60 minute monologue. And so we cordoned off the space and only used half of it. And we had about 25 people in the room. And it, again, it just felt like it was going to get too presentational to do it kind of in a proscenium kind right. of way. So let's, let's take, let's take a time traveling trip <laughs> back to, uh, when was the first moment that you fell in love with performance? <laughs> I can say really specifically. You know, you I know, do you know. can pull it out like yeah, that. Yeah, I can. Second grade. Second grade. Second grade. High, my mom in small town, West Virginia, is choreographing South Pacific for the high school musical. <laughs> and they need a little girl to play Nagata. And, you know, I look so much like a Polynesian <laughs> little girl. <laughs> I'm red-haired and freckled. Uh, but in, we didn't have that choice in small town, West Virginia, in whenever that was, a long time ago. So I played Nagata, and I got to sing Dite Moi and be on the stage. And what struck me was just loving what I was watching. I liked doing it, but I loved watching it. And I would sit in the wings and just block everyone's entrance and exit. I'd just sit there with my legs splayed out, and I knew every word and every lyric, and I'd just sit there and sort of sing along in my head and watch everybody. And I was just smitten. I was just smitten. I just couldn't get enough of it. <laughs> but... I never thought I'd really do it for a career. I was going to do something more practical, like be a music teacher. And I studied music a lot and thought that that would be my course. But um, when I got to college, I, I was practicing piano in this little six by six or eight rehearsal by eight room. rehearsal yeah. room. And then I thought, well, I also want to take some theater classes. It'll be a good way to meet some people. And then, you know, so the contrast of being in this room of people and the ensemble collaborative nature of theater. And then I'd go practice in my little practice room. And I realized that's not me. You know, I need to be in the room with other people. I don't have the discipline for one thing to do it by myself. <laughs> I'm the same way. I played oboe for years. But uh -huh. that exact 
I can have, I have a parallel between that. Yeah. The, re- the practice room is so lonely and it, you're doing so much technical work, mm-hmm. uh, and you're your own disciplinarian. And then the polar opposite being in a room with a temporary family. Yeah. Yeah. That feeds you in a yeah. different way. And performing music was really too scary for me too. I could have been a teacher. I think I could have been a decent choir director maybe, but the performance of it is too scary. Theater, you can, you know, you, there's more room to play. The, the, but if you hit the wrong precision note. of classical <laughs> music is just mind-numbingly difficult. I <laughs> couldn't do it. Where, where, you, where did you study? College? I went to UC Santa Barbara. And ended up being a theater major, I would think. Yep, yep. That's what cool. was the traje- trajectory after undergraduate work? Uh, well, I met my husband, John Kazanjian, who was a graduate student there. So we met there, and um, we were together. And then he moved, he finished and moved to New York, and I finished up. And then I moved to New York to be with him and to live in New York. So we lived in New York for several years, and uh, and then, you know, after several years of working there... And the Williamstown Theater Festival, you know, Brooke Walker had seen me in something in New York, and uh, and that brought me out here for to do a Maria Iman Fornes play of um, Pfeffer and her friends. So I love hearing I love hearing the just the span of a life in the theater because it's it's so huge. Does it? I don't think anyone lives as largely as we do in the theater. <laughs> Maybe that's just my biased opinion. <laughs> Living large. Living large. <laughs> What other plays in Shakespeare's canon have been among your favorites to perform in? Uh, well, King Lear was fun because I was doing another double role there where I was playing the fool and Cordelia. Oh, wow. Um, in, in the, the same, same night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're not on stage together. Um, so that was a great contrast. And uh, got to do that with Clayton Corzat playing Lear, which was pretty sweet. Um, uh and doing Hamlet was was amazing to get to tackle that mountain. And, and I'm glad that I, I got to do Gertrude um, before I tackled Hamlet. So it was a way to kind of get to know the play. So. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and in my younger days, I got to play Rosalind and Portia. Uh, and, you know, those are all great learning experiences. Um, and it's a shame I'd like like to go back and do those and do them better now. <laughs> I don't think that's gonna happen. Isn't that always the truth? <laughs> yeah. Just in this in this day where we're day and age where we're so plugged into our electronic devices, what they say that the average person will have spent four years of their life looking down at their phone by the time that they pass away. Four years. God. Why is it still important that we produce Shakespeare and other classical works in this day and age? Well, it's um it's just so full of humanity. It's so um, richly textured with all the different levels of humanity. The, that all his plays really come down to being about chaos versus order. And it's there's just such universal themes that there's always something new to explore in them. Um, but at the same time, I feel like doing new and experimental work and new voices is equally as important. I'm not a pure classicist by any means. But um, I think it's important to just look at the whole canon and uh, and, and just keep keep doing the breadth of it all and keep encouraging audiences to check out what what is live theater and 
why might it be more interesting to me than another Netflix thing, you know, that I'm going <laughs> to watch tonight? Um, so. In terms of new voices, what, what playwrights are you looking to to see what they're going to turn out next? Uh, Mike Bartlett is a pretty wonderful British playwright. I love Carol Churchill. Um, we've done a couple pieces of hers, so always interested to see what she's doing. Always interested in new Wallace Shawn stuff as well. Um, uh, I love um, uh, Martin McDonough, mm, but yes. um, you know so many of these works are too big cast-wise and and/or set-wise for us to really be able to take on. But um, it's fun to I want to see them. <laughs> Where is New City Theater going next? What do you look forward? Well, uh, we've been we've had this space up on 18th and Union, these two storefronts, uh, and it's a found space that we've made into a theater. And um, so we've been up there since about 2008, and it's uh, hard for us to keep it going financially. Uh, we don't get contributed money anymore, um, public money anymore. Um, so. Uh, I think we can pull off one more season, and then we'll probably have to let the space go. And so next season, we're hoping to do Joe Orton's What the Butler Saw, mm. and not sure when in the season, um, and then something smaller. Not sure what that'll be either. And then um, we'll probably move back to doing probably maybe only one thing a year, and doing it um, either in a found space or a co-production with another theater company sure. or occasionally doing smaller things here in the house again. So uh, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. We'll keep doing stuff. Of course. But, uh, we, won't, yes. uh, we won't be able to keep that space going too much longer. I hope that maybe we can pass it on to another company or two that could share right. it. Can you talk a little bit about having this partner in life and in art and what that relationship has been like over the years and how it's grown? Yeah, it's tricky. Um, <laughs> I, would, always, I would imagine people either. ask me that and it's like uh, it's it's way more good than bad <laughs> um, but there are always points when it's a little challenging you know because I'm a bossy female and I wanna, <laughs> sometimes you know with any director you want to go well how come you get to decide you know um, which can get tricky if you don't agree on something but for the most part our tastes have developed together over the years luckily and our aesthetic tastes are so in line now that you know, it's very rare that we'll walk away from something and not feel, you know, like a pretty similar reaction. Um, and so uh, I've just loved uh, that because as, I, as we've grown more and more secure with each other and confident in each other, not have to prove anything anymore. Right. That was tricky at the beginning was this sense of having to please or having to, which is not a good thing to carry over into a relationship. Um, but once we got past that and really knew that we were secure with each other as artists, um, that I'm able to really be a collaborator on a much deeper level than a jobbed in actor. And for instance, on The Tempest, I, I wrote a bunch of the music and I did the choreography. And, you know, I love having my hand in in many different ways and um and I'll sort of you know assistant director if a scene needs work and I sure. can take it off and work on it and stuff so I, I like having um you know looking at the bigger picture a little bit more and and it's been fun to get to share all that and we never run out of things to talk about there you go <laughs> what is the experience like 
uh, playing Prospero opposite your daughter as Ariel, yeah. right? Yeah. That must be a really unique experience. It is. It's it's so sweet. It's really been fun. And, you know, we kind of talked her into this. Cause she was just <laughs> going to be one of the singers. Cause how, she's, how old is she's she? She's 24. And uh, she was just going to be one of the singers because she's confident with that, has a lovely voice. And then we kind of know, wait, maybe you should just do Ariel. Because Ariel really has to sing. And... Um, and so she was very reluctant because she said, I'm not an actor. I don't want to be with all these professional actors. That's, you know, that's too much. And, uh, but she ended up deciding, why not take the risk? Well, I'm never going to do anything like this again, perhaps. So why not go for it? And, and I think she's surprising people. <laughs> Certainly surprised me. And it's, it's delightful because we do have a lovely connection on stage and really trust each other and can kind of read each other. And uh, so it's, it's fun. Absolutely. <laughs> I get all warm and fuzzy listening to you talk about that. <laughs> well, I think Harry and Julie are having a fun time playing together, And they're too. playing, what, two roles uh, are Stefano and Trinculo, so. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, so they need to be yeah. drunk and messes Exactly. Together. They're having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> when, as we move forward, I, I know Shakespeare has this grand tradition of, if if uh, if anyone, can, if any play you can be sort of gender-bending with, you can do it with Shakespeare, at least to some extent. Uh, as we move forward and we have just greater diversity in gender identity with actors and whatnot, where do you sort of see, do you think that we'll even abolish the idea of type or whatever? Like, where do you see casting going moving forward? I hope that's true. That would be very wouldn't exciting. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It? it really would. You know, it's. Um, I would love to do a production of Waiting for Godot, but the um, the Beckett Foundation you know, has held so t- such tight reins on, you know, no cross gender casting and everything. And and I, I'm wondering, is that going to have to change if a transgender actor wanted to do that role? Well, Are they going to be able to say no? I'm curious where this I'm is. Glad going. Well, that's because I identify I identify as gender queer. And so that's the question that I have when you have folks like Mamet or the estate of Beckett who are so uh, vigilant in terms of what they put down for no cross-gender casting. But if you have an actor who's gender fluid or trans, it to me it butts up against some of this rhetoric that folks use with the bathroom laws and that discrimination, mm-hmm. right? Are you going to yeah. look down an actor's pants to decide yeah. whether or not they can play a role? And I'm, I'm really interested to see that lawsuit come up, right? Yeah. yeah. That's not really a question, but it's something that's very close to my heart and I'm very passionate about. I'm very curious about that. I was talking with somebody about that recently and like, how much longer are they going to be able to ride at this tight? I don't, I don't think, I don't, it's, it's definitely looming, you know, something that's going to have to be addressed. Yeah. I just finished, uh, I finished a round of 39 steps and I got to play one of the clowns and I just, I think I played 19 different male characters (laughs) and it wasn't, it wasn't cross-gender casting. I was playing male characters. I was, you know, I had a binder on or whatever. And uh, I fooled. Fooled isn't the right word. But it was just so delightful to have that moment. I love that moment of transformation where a day, a week, a month later, an audience member is in conversation with you. And they say, you? You were in that play? Uh-huh. That was you? Yeah. Because I think that's... Hopefully when we're doing our best work, right? When we completely lose ourselves yeah. or are unrecognizable for some. Yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting. And some roles call for that and some don't. I mean, we've made a choice with both Hamlet and Prospero that I'm not in any way trying to play a man. Mm. I'm just taking on the given circumstances of that character 
in my body and in who I am. So we haven't changed pronouns or anything. But that's different than, say, back when I did um, Crow in Tooth of Crime, the sure. Sam Shepard musical. Then I was, you know, really working physically and, and in every way to be more androgynous. Um, so different roles. It's interesting, you know, how much you try to bend it. Absolutely. Do you have any advice for up-and-coming theater artists? What is Mary Ewald's Acting 101 or Theater Making 101, the tenets of it? Is to read a lot of plays. I think most <laughs> most actors are underread. Absolutely, I myself agree. included. But keep reading, keep reading plays, and keep looking at new stuff, and um, and get out there and see the best work you can see, which probably means you're not just going to stay in Seattle. Right. You've got to get out and see world class theater to know what that looks like, and to know it when you see it, and therefore know what you're aiming for. Says we all need to aim for excellence. And not take, um, not be satisfied with um, it just being good enough. You know, we have to. So go to New York. Go to the Avignon Theater Festival. <laughs> go. You know, I mean, I know that's a privileged thing to say. Just go. But whenever you can, you know, travel and see see work elsewhere, and um, and then bring it home and educate us all by you know what you're inspired by. I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Well, as we sort of wrap up our time together, I was wondering if you might give us a couple of your favorite lines from The Tempest, and that could be the note that we sort of end the interview on. So it's a very, very famous speech, but it's um, that sense of the fluidity of life, and um, so the, the mask has ended, and he says, our our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, Leave not a rack behind. And then I guess I should follow it with then the next line, which is, we are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleeve. So that's a pretty interesting speech mm. because it can be done in so many ways. And, you know, it can be done from a really kind of dark, nihilistic place. <laughs> or, you know, from... A, so it's, it's very interesting to play with that in the context of where Prospero is at that moment. But those words are pretty beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for sharing, for sharing them. That was absolutely lovely. Thank you. So, of course, obviously, after hearing that, dear listeners, you're going to want to go to newcitytheater.org <laughs> and get your tickets before the show closes on April 30th. Thank you so much for being Thank a guest you, on the Katie. podcast. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much.